he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Beloved, what is the Lord Jesus teaching us in this text? He says that the Old Testament has three parts, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And Jesus says that all three of those parts are about him. So that when we read an Old Testament text, it is not something that's disconnected from Jesus, but it is something that actually points us to Jesus. And this is all according to Jesus. And today, we are looking at one of those parts. We're looking at the prophets. We're looking at Isaiah. And I will declare to us, for all of us, I think it would be foolish for us if we didn't use the key. If we didn't use Jesus' understanding of the Old Testament as we look at this passage. Because today, I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see Jesus from the Old Testament as Isaiah speaks about Christ, pointing him to all of us today. Today we're going to see how God has always promised to work through the child that was born in Bethlehem on that first Christmas day. Now I know Hunter said every good Presbyterian is going to have three points, and I'm going to have four. (laughs) If you look at the back of your bulletin today, this text breaks down into four different parts. So Today I want you to see four things. First of all, the past. Secondly, the future. Thirdly, the promise, the promised child and his names. And then fourth and finally, I want you to see Christ's reign. And let's use that key. Let's see how the prophets speak to us about Jesus. First of all, though, let's look at the past. If you have your Bibles open, look back at verse 1 of your text. Let's read the first half of verse 1 again. The Bible says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish in the former time. You see that phrase, in the former time. In other words, in the past. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's what the Bible tells us this morning. We know that after the time of the judges in the Old Testament, Israel wanted a king. They asked for a king. So God gave them kings. He gave them Saul and David and Solomon. Those were the first three kings of Israel. But in about 930 B.C., the Bible teaches us that the kingdom split. It separated into two areas. You had a northern kingdom called northern Israel, and in the south, you had the land of Judah. And the kings split as well. The line of David went with the south. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was the first king of Judah. But in the north... The line of David did not continue. The Bible says that another man named Jeroboam, he was their first king. And as we study the pages of Scripture, the Bible tells us that the northern kingdom under Jeroboam became very pagan very quickly. The Bible says the people of the northern kingdom of Israel turned away from the Lord their God. This is what Hosea says. Listen to what Hosea says. How Hosea describes the reaction of the, of the, the people of God turning, turning to a pagan 
God, it says that the people of northern Israel began to love the raisin cakes of the false gods rather than turning to the Lord their God. That the northern kingdom became more concerned with their own stomachs, their own appetite of raisin cakes, and they turned away from God, and they had their eyes not on God but on the world. They loved the raisin cakes, so they turned away from God. So what happened in their past? When about 732 B.C., God allowed another pagan country to come in the country of Assyria. He allowed Assyria to siege northern Israel. He allowed Assyria to come in and to sack the capital of northern Israel. And under the reign of Tiglath-Pileser III, under the reign of Sargon II, northern Israel was conquered by Assyria, and the people were taken away to exile in Assyria. And it was during that destruction that the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the two areas that we read about here in verse 1, these regions in northern Israel next to the Sea of Galilee, they were the first areas to be conquered by this Assyrian invasion in around 732 B.C. And the Assyrians carted them off, removed them from their homeland. Now think about this. Think about being one of those people in Israel who was conquered by Assyria. You have a foreign country coming in, and they're carrying you off to a far and a distant land. It must have been a hard and a difficult time. In fact, if you read verse 1, it mentions verbs, words like there was gloom, there was anguish for these people. It was a hopeless time. And Isaiah is writing to these folks, and they're saying, Listen, all of that's in your past. That gloom, that anguish, that distress that you had in your heritage, that's in your past. But now, Isaiah says, I want to point you to what's in your future. And he does that in the second part of verse 1. Let's read from the second part of verse 1 to the end of verse 3 once again. But in the latter time, and he's pointing them to their future. He had just said in the former time, but now he says, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. That's with joy at the harvest. And I say you're glad when they divide the spoil. This, this is your future, Isaiah is telling these folks. And the first thing I want you to notice compared to the past is the, verb, is, is the word change, the language change that Isaiah gives. He gives hope for the future. You see, in the past, when he talked about the words of the past, he used words like gloom and anguish, contempt and darkness. But now, Isaiah says, as you look to your future, look what God is going to do. And he uses words like glorious, light, even joy. And he says in verse 3 that there's going to be so much joy. It's going to be like two things, says verse 3. 
Verse 3 says, it's going to be like people who rejoice at the harvest. Like men who rejoice in dividing the spoil. There's something coming. You should be expecting something big to happen. Your future is bright. That's what he's telling Israel. And beloved, right here is where every single one of us needs to pull out the key. Luke 24, 44. Jesus said that everything written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms, they're all about him. A few moments ago, our brother Daryl read from Matthew chapter 4. We're going to put that text back up on the screen for you. In Matthew chapter 4, let's be reminded what this says. And what I want you to do as I reread this text, what I want you to do is I want you to see how this text compares with our main text of Isaiah 9. How much of this New Testament text is actually found in the Old Testament. See if you hear things we've already read from in Isaiah. It says, Now when they heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of what? Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The key says that the prophets were all written about Jesus. Beloved, what I want you to know is that some of the most amazing passages in the whole Bible is when a New Testament author like Matthew takes an Old Testament text like Isaiah and he picks it up and he brings it in to his New Testament book and he applies that text to Jesus. Do you see it? Do you see how Matthew is doing that? Matthew, when he wrote his gospel, was writing to a primarily Jewish audience. He was heavily dependent upon the Old Testament, as were all the New Testament writers. But Matthew, more than any of them altogether, there's, there's more from Matthew than any of the gospel. And what Matthew is doing, he's, he's telling his Jew, Jewish audience, hey, I want you to see Jesus. And here's how I want you to see Jesus. I want to take that Old Testament, those law, that law, the prophets and the Psalms, everything that you believe, and I want to pick it up and put it in my book, and I'm going to apply it to Jesus because that was talking about him. Jesus tells us that's the way to understand the Bible. Beloved, it's in the person and the work of Jesus that the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in the book of Matthew. Jesus is the light that has dawned. Jesus is the light that came to the area of Zebulun and Naphtali in northern Israel. And all those Old Testament prophecies find their fulfillment in Jesus. Remember the key. Luke 24, 44, Jesus said it's all about him. And what, he's, and what Isaiah is trying to tell his people, that 
Yes, you had a difficult past. Yes, you were in anguish. Yes, these regions were crushed. But there's going to be one day when a light is going to dawn. In fact, that's going to be a person, as he's getting ready to tell us, a child will be born who will walk in those same areas that were destroyed by Assyria. And in him will be your future hope. So that leads us to our next point. The promise. Isaiah makes the future even more clear for us in telling us this promised child is going to come and be the fulfillment of that future hope. Look at it in verse 6. I'm back in Isaiah chapter 6, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah says this, here's your future hope, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We're talking about Jesus today. We're talking about the names of Christ. This child is going to be the future hope of Israel. What's his name? His first name is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful counselor. What's the word picture behind that phrase, wonderful counselor? It's that of a great strategist. One who finds a way out of a difficult situation, a difficult problem, and one who organizes victory for his people. Is there someone in this life that you go to when you have a problem, that you lean on? Someone who's a good counselor, who might have a good strategy to help you in a difficult time. Maybe it's your mom or dad or a brother or sister or, or just a friend or, or a professional counselor. We all need that from time to time. We need counsel. We need advice. We need strategy. Well, this is the name that the Bible applies to Jesus. He's the wonderful counselor, the great strategist. Now, as we look back, maybe in the Old Testament, what are some ways that God has shown that he's a great strategist, that he is a good counselor? Think back with me about the Exodus. We talked about this a few weeks ago. You know, so much of the Bible is dedicated to the story of the Exodus, not only in the law, but in the Psalms as well. But think about God strategizing a plan for Israel not only to come out of Egypt, but once they came out, they got to the Red Sea. And if you remember at that moment, many people in Israel complained. They groaned against Moses and against God. And basically, that day, didn't they say, hey, this is not a very good strategy. You take us out of Egypt and... We just run into the Red Sea. We can't go anywhere. Hey, Moses, at least I had a meal and place to lay my head back in Egypt. Why did you bring me here? This is a terrible strategy. Well, then the wonderful counselor shows up. The great strategist shows up. Because Egypt's coming up on them, right? If they go this way, they're going to get killed by the Egyptians, if they go this way, they're going to die in the Red Sea. The great strategist shows up, and what does he do? 
He puts the fire between Egypt and Israel, keeps Egypt away. And on this side, he parts the Red Sea, and they walk across on dry land. He's the great strategist. He's the one who figures out how to win the battle. Think about Gideon. Gideon started with 32,000 people in his army, but God said that was too many. And God whittled it down all the way to 300. Do you realize that is over a 99% reduction? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard, Lord. Are you kidding me? You reduced my army by over 99% and you want me to go fight the Midianites? The great strategist showed up, didn't he? And God used those 300 soldiers that day and gave victory to Gideon because God knows better. He's the great strategist. He's the wonderful counselor. And he still does that for you and me, even today. How does God figure out things that we can't figure out? Think about your own sin. We're, we've, we, we know the Bible says that we're sinners, that there's none righteous, no, not one, that the wages of sin is death. That means we can't do anything about our own sin. And we ask ourselves, how are we going to get out of this mess? How am I going to have a right relationship with God when I can't get rid of my own sin? The great counselor, or the wonderful counselor, says to us, hey, I've got a way. I've got a strategy. And I get it, but it's not something you've never thought about. You see, I'm going to send my son from heaven to earth, and he's going to be born in a manger. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And he's going to live a perfect life. He's going to go through everything that you go through, yet he will do it perfectly. And then he will set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. And he will go to the cross. And he will take the punishment that is due for you and me. And Jesus will die for your sin. He'll be buried with them, but he'll rise without them. He'll conquer all of your enemies so that you can be saved by grace through faith in his name. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the great strategist. He figures out problems that we could never figure out on our own. That's his name. Secondly, he's the mighty God. Mighty God. The word picture behind mighty God is that of a warrior, a fighter, a soldier. Think about this. If I asked you, give me a name or an adjective that describes God, what would you say? Just in your own mind. God is blank. God is love. God is light. God is good. God is great. God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. Those are all things that we say pretty quickly. Let me ask you, do you ever think in your mind, warrior, fighter, Because that's the image behind this name. Mighty God is the image of a warrior and a fighter. We've talked a little bit about the Exodus. Exodus 15.3, after they crossed the Red Sea and the Red Sea crashed on the Egyptians, Israel sang a song to God. And in that song, Exodus 15.3 says, Lord, you are a man of war. You're a fighter. You fight for your people. 
Daniel would have told you, God fought for me because there's no way I could have closed the mouths of those lions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have told you, hey, God fought for me today because I couldn't handle a fiery furnace on my own. You see, the Lord fights for his people, and he wins battles that his people could never win on their own. And that's exactly what he does with our sin. We can't win that battle. The wages of sin is death. But Christ took on sin. He took on death. He took on hell. And he defeated all of them. In his work on the cross, in his resurrection, Christ conquers our enemies. Why? Because he's the mighty God. He's a man of war, and he fights those battles for his people. That's how much he loves us. Thirdly, he's the everlasting Father. The word picture behind that phrase is that of a caring father. It's ruled by fatherly care. That first word, everlasting, it means that he has always been and forever will be. As Jesus has taught us, he's the Alpha, the Omega. He's the beginning, the end, the first, the last. Then it says he's the everlasting what? Father. Many people have said, why doesn't it say son? Jesus is the son of God. Why doesn't it, doesn't it say everlasting son? Well, in ancient Near Eastern custom, the word father denotes, again, care. Care for his people. So it's meaning someone who cares like a father, for his people. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Jesus said in John 10, I'm the good shepherd. And I love you so much. I care for you so much. I'm going to lay down my life for my sheep. He is certainly one who cares. And then finally, the last name. Prince of Peace. Many a king sat on the throne and tried to bring peace to the land of Israel, tried to bring peace to Judah, but they couldn't do it. Saul couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. Their children couldn't do it. The Bible tells us that the only king who will ever sit on the throne to bring peace between you and God and between you and other people is King Jesus. You remember the angel's announcement at his birth. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. Mark chapter 4, that great chapter on peace. Jesus is on the boat. The storm is coming. Jesus is asleep. They wake him up. We need your help, Jesus. He stands, and what does he say? Peace be still. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the only one who can bring peace in your heart between you and God and you and other people. These are the names of Jesus. Which brings us to our fourth point today. Christ's reign. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth 
and forevermore. When we study the life of David, we find in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David. And he says, David, one day, a child from your line is going to sit on the throne. And his kingdom will never end. It will never, ever end. David was excited, I'm sure, to hear that. Maybe it was Solomon. Maybe it was Solomon's son. And it wasn't. It wasn't Rehoboam. It wasn't the many who came after them. But as the Gospel of Luke tells us, one day, the seed of David was born, Jesus Christ. And he would be the one to sit on the throne of his great-great-great-great-grandfather David. And his kingdom will never, ever end. Yes, kings kept coming, kings kept dying, but only Jesus was going to reign forever. Beloved, as we close the sermon today, I want you to see the last line of verse 7. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do that, will do this. What is zeal? I love people with zeal. People who have a passionate purpose an intention to go do something. I'm going to make this happen. Whatever it takes, it's going to get done. That's how the Bible describes God. The zeal of God will make this happen. Yes, you had a terrible past, but guess what? God is saying, I promise you, you're going to have a joyful future. And I'm going to make it happen because my son's going to come to this earth in the womb of the Virgin Mary and be born of her. And he will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He will be the one to usher in salvation unto you. And see, Isaiah is on this side of the cross. Isaiah, though he had a bad past, Isaiah is saying, look to your future, Israel. Look to the one who's to come. But for you and me, we've already experienced that. We're on this side of things. You see, Isaiah looked forward to it, and what do we do? We look back. We look back upon what Christ has done. And the Bible says to us that we are the heirs of all the promises that Isaiah made to Israel that day. But I'm not done, and the Bible's not done. Because even though we look back, you and I can still look forward. Because guess what? Jesus is coming back. He's coming back, and he's coming back to consummate his kingdom, to take us to be with him, that we live with the Lord forever. This is the gospel. This is the good news of salvation, and I want you this Christmas season to know so many things. I want you to see, first of all, Jesus is everywhere in your Bible. He's in the prophets. He's in the law. He's in the Psalms. Don't ever, ever forget about the key of Luke 24, 44. And I want you to see everything that God has promised you and fulfilled in Christ. And I want you to know that the God who is mighty to save his people is mighty to save you today. If you're here today and you don't know this Jesus, come to him today. Repenting of your sin, embracing him as Lord and Savior of your life. And for those of you who know him, rejoice in the fact that God, our wonderful counselor, our great strategist, has made this beautiful plan, beautiful plan of salvation for you and for me today. Pray with me, please.